Okay, welcome everybody to uh, tonight's lecture. Uh, my name is Michael Mason. I'm chairing the uh, public lecture. I'm from the Department of Geography and Environment. I do work on environmental politics and policy. I would have come to this talk anyway. Just, I would have been sitting there instead of here. Uh, but I'm very, very pleased to uh, introduce our guest tonight, uh, Polly Higgins. The title of the talk is Eradicating Ecocide Laws and Governance to Prevent the Destruction of Our Planet. Before we launch into the talk, just to say briefly, this lecture tonight is one of a series called the LSE Sustainability and Practice Series. Anybody been to any of the other lectures in this series? A couple, good. We've got some, some loyalists, some lecture series loyalists. Um, and I, Victoria Hands, who's our Sustainability uh, Director at LSE, has asked me to let you know about the next one in the series which is next Tuesday, between half past six and eight, also in this venue, called uh, uh, Homo Sapiens Report, The Future of Humanity, by someone called Michael Wadley. Michael Wadley is a uh, film director, won an Oscar for his documentary on the Woodstock uh, uh, Festival uh, uh, many years ago. So he'll be talking about uh, the sort of a global state of the planet from a sort of cultural, creative industries perspective. So I encourage you, please, if you're interested, to come to that. To tonight's public lecture, like I said, we're very, very happy uh, 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 to welcome Polly Higgins here to the LSC uh, to talk about Ecoside. Um, I have a, a, long, a long biography here for Polly. I won't go through all of it, but it, it's sort of, uh, it's worth perhaps uh, uh, dwelling on some things, just to give you an idea. I'm sure some of you know who, already who she is or perhaps know of her work or the concept Ecoside. Um, Polly is a barrister, author, and international environmental lawyer. Um, she was uh, voted by the ecologist as one of the world's top ten visionary thinkers for earlier work ad advancing the, un sort of the Universal Declaration of Planetary Rights. Um, her ecocide sort of work is, uh, I guess, in, in, at least in the popular media, associated with her submission to the UN of a proposal that ecocide is presented as a fifth crime against peace to be recognized alongside genocide. Polly will talk about that, obviously, tonight. Um, she was nominated for the Planet's Lawyer Award uh, by the 2020-10 Performance Awards. And this, this is an interesting one, Polly, has been named one of the top unreasonable people in the world. I guess that's a compliment in this context, yeah? By the cult US online magazine, Planet Green, for refusing to accept the norm, and held by the Guardian as one of the green heroes working for the right kind of environmental change. Um, Polly's here also with her first book, which I did grab a copy of. I'll just show it to you before we start. There are copies of this available outside, uh, Eradicating the Ecocide. I tried to get a discount for you from the publisher, but apparently it's not possible. However, as this is LSC, and we, we, of course we're obsessed with incentives, if you purchase a copy, Polly will sign it for you. So you can't get a better deal than that. Um, so as I said, the, just to give you an idea of the format, the usual format for this sort of lecture, uh, Polly's going to talk for about 30, 40 minutes. Uh, I would ask you, please, when she's talking, the usual sort of norm at LSE, for those of you from outside LSE, is not to interrupt the speaker unless you're desperate to have something clarified, but wait till the end, okay? When Polly's finished, we'll open up for questions, and I'll probably take about two questions at a time from the audience. And hopefully, I think we'll have a good sort of 20, 25 minutes for discussion, okay? So thank you very much, all of you, for coming tonight. And thank you particularly. Can I all ask you to express your appreciation before she starts, I'm sure also when she finishes, to Polly, for coming to LSE tonight. Thank you, Polly. Thank you very much, everyone. It's a delight to be here this evening. I, let me see if I can get these slides to work. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. So, ecocide. I, before I actually step into explaining what the crime of ecocide is that I've proposed, I think my starting point is to explain what's meant by crime against peace. Most people haven't actually even heard of this term, but in fact, this is something that really is about global governance on, on a universal scale. And we have four known crimes against peace. This evolved out of the Second World War, when it was finally recognized that life is not cheap, 
and there's certain forms of behaviour that we have to prohibit, we have to close the door to. And this is really also, it's, it's about what's known in law as a well-being provision, health and well-being, well-being of human life. It's also it's about the principles of universal validity that apply to civilization as a whole, kind of an umbrella law, if you like. So even if you don't agree with it, you are hidebound by it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's also it's premised on morality. It's about underpinning and prohibiting certain behavior. And this is why we have outlawed and criminalized apartheid, genocide, and such like. But most importantly, it's a morality based on the sacredness of life itself. And what we have here are four crimes against peace. And they are genocide, which was put in place in 1948, just within three years of the end of the war, crimes against humanity at the same time, war crimes as well. And the most recent one, which was voted uh, just last year, is crimes of aggression. And what I'm saying is that it's not just about the well-being of human life, but it's the well-being of all life. And that there's a fifth crime against peace here that we can add to it, and that is the ecocide. So what we're doing is we're expanding our cycle of concern. It's no longer just human-to-human -human concern, but actually we're looking at a wider concern, the life of all species, all beings that are out there. This is really premised on an understanding of the interconnectedness of life. We don't stand in isolation. Uh, we are interdependent on other beings, on other forms of life. The easiest one to, to give us an example are bees. We take bees out of the equation, we take out of the equation the ability to pollinate, and that means we lose, as humans, 70% of our foodstuffs overnight. Now, I know no head of state that can pollinate, so we really do need to revere our bees. And that's also about understanding that although we may not have had an earlier appreciation of just how precious other species are, and indeed we may not have an appreciation of certain species and their role today, it's a, a recognition that we are all interconnected in some manner or form. We lose one species that has an, a, an adverse impact and deterrent on many, many other species. So the crime of ecocide, before I actually dig in and unpackage what exactly that crime is, because that really is a word that's quite evocative, you can guess what it means, eco, ecosystem, side, well we understand we have genocide, we have pesticide, we understand it in the context of killing, but it's actually also about understanding well, where do we house these crimes against peace? And we have what I call a very important piece of hardware that has been put in place relatively recently, and that is the International Criminal Court. That was only put in place 2002. The first case was, was up and running 2006. So what we have here, it sits in The Hague, are just four or five years of a, a court of permanent jurisdiction. Now, why is this so important? Well, prior to the ICC being put in place, we only had tribunals that were situational specific. So the Nuremberg tribunals were only put in place to deal with World War II. The same with Yugoslavia and Rwanda. And it got to a position where it was understood within the international community that it's too late in the day to go in after the event, to go in after there's been mass decimation, slaughtering and such like, and then set up a tribunal to bring justice. And then in fact if we had something in place from the outset, then we can move far faster. Now what we have seen with the ICC is in fact there is data to demonstrate that genocide numbers have as a result dropped. I'm not too sure how this is measured, but it does send out a very powerful message, and there's a very good documentary out there on uh, the, the powerful message that has been sent out by having a court in place permanently. Literally, you will have your nutty insurgent of a mountain thinking twice 
about going down the other side of the mountain and killing a few thousand people because there is that recognition that his rights or her rights can be withdrawn and incarceration is a very, very powerful disincentive. So pre-existing hardware. Pre-existing hardware is very, very useful because when we have pre-existing hardware, there's not terribly much we need to change or input as a piece of software to let the cogs turn. We already have a United Nations. It's not a perfect beast. It's not a perfectly moving mechanism in its own right. But this could be because, in fact, we have missing pieces of the software that we need to put in place. And I'm saying that Ecoside is a piece of software that could allow these cogs to turn. We already have crimes against peace. We already have the International uh, Criminal Court. And we already have an understanding of the human right to life. These are already in place. It doesn't take much more to input something else in there. We're not having to reinvent our wheels completely here. We're not having to start from scratch. And that is really important because it means we can also move very, very fast here. So why do we need even to recognize that it should be a crime to damage or destroy life? Well, here are some figures. Every day, 100 living species become extinct. Every day, 1,000 acres of peat bog are excavated. Every day, 150,000 acres of tropical rainforest are destroyed. Every day, 2 million tons of toxic waste is dumped. Every day, 22 million tons of oil are extracted. Every day, 100 million tons of greenhouse gases are released. This is escalating. These figures already are out of date. And there was a very important report that came out last year, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, the TEAB report. They did a very useful number crunching exercise. They looked at the top 3,000 corporations in the world. And they did a number crunching exercise on their corporate activity, what they make their profits out of, and how much damage and destruction does that cause. These are conservative estimates. They're looking just at easy causal linkage that they could report on. And what they discovered was that for the year 2008, the damage and destruction was 2.2 trillion. Now, these are all just really big numbers. But to give this context, 2.2 trillion dollars is only exceeded by seven nations' GDPs. So this is a huge amount of damage and destruction on, on a global scale. 2009, most worryingly, is almost double. It's $4 trillion. 2010, it's anticipated it will be almost double again, $8 trillion. So somewhere along the line, we're escalating out of control in terms of damage and destruction that has been normalized through corporate activity. It's not a crime. It's perfectly acceptable. And somewhere along the line, we have to close the door to that. So David King, our chief, ex-chief scientific uh, advisor to the government, he said that the 21st century will be remembered as a century of resource wars. In fact, we've already had a war over water, Darfur, a war over oil, Iraq, that we are entering into an era of ecocide. Because the problem is this, we have now a hermetically sealed cycle of damage and destruction, which I call ecocide, which leads to resource depletion. That then leads to conflict, and that ultimately then leads to war. And when we have war, we have even more damage and destruction, and so we keep on spiraling onwards and upwards. Now, what we need to do here is instead of slowing this down, we need to actually halt it in its tracks. We need to cut the cycle. We have to stop it spiraling out of control. And this is where the power of law steps in. And this is where the crime of ecocide can do precisely that. This is the definition that I have proposed into the United Nations, uh, the UN Law Commission back in April 2010. And the definition is this. 
Ecocide is the extensive destruction, damage to or loss of ecosystems of a given territory. And that can be done in two ways, whether by human agency or, secondly, by what I'm terming other causes. To such an extent that peaceful enjoyment by the inhabitants of that territory has been severely diminished. Each phrase, each term, each word is legally weighted here. They hold their own weight and understanding within laws and legislation, not just within criminal laws, but also within the law of tort as well. Because this isn't just about creating a crime, it's also about recognizing a larger law of ecocide. So two types of ecocide. You'll see in the screen here on the left-hand side, human-made ecocide, and what I've also called other causes on the right-hand side. So on the left-hand side, what is human-made ecocide? This tends to be corporate ecocide. This is what's happening on a mass scale. So we're looking at mining. This is fossil fuel extraction. This is toxic waste dumping, dumping on a large scale. This is deforestation. The most potent example that came about just three weeks after I submitted my proposal into the United Nations was the BP Gulf oil spill. And that was a very telling exercise in how a word starts to take on its own momentum. The word ecocide has actually been around since the 1970s, but it really hadn't hit the radar in any particular way. And I had been monitoring its activity on Google for about three months before I submitted my, my, my proposal to the UN. And it hardly featured at all. All that would come up was a book that was written in the 80s, a very good book on ecocide. But that was about it. With the BP Gulf oil spill, three weeks after my submission, and literally two weeks after we had put up our website, this is ecocide.com, that word went stratospheric, and it was turning up all over the world. And I was initially fielding interviews from countries all over the world as well, because the first thing you Googled came up with my website. So suddenly there became a widening consciousness and understanding around this word. Most excitingly, just yesterday, I had a, a researcher and a journalist get in touch with me uh, who has managed to unearth documents at the UN to show that, in fact, the crime of ecocide was up for consideration in 1995 as a war crime. And every country who were member states at that time, bar three, had voted for it to become a war crime. We haven't quite gotten to the bottom of why it fell off the agenda, but it does show that somewhere along the line this has already been considered. And that's very important because it does demonstrate that in fact this is not such an unlikely idea after all, and maybe now is its time. So turning to other forms of ecocide, non-human made, non-corporate ecocide, what we're looking at I've termed other causes, what are also known in law as sometimes acts of God, force majeure, legal terms. What do these mean? Well, examples are tsunamis, rising sea levels, floods, earthquakes. These lead to ecosystem collapse. These are the sorts of ecocides that you can't directly point a finger and say that's as a result of certain corporate activity. But there does tend to be a link between the two not necessarily directly, but indirectly. Because, of course, as we continue to escalate man-made ecocide, what we're doing is we're creating an escalation in excess greenhouse gases. It is just one symptom of a problem. But by seeing that we have, and we have been monitoring our excess greenhouse gases very well, what we're seeing is that it's then triggering instability in our atmosphere and in our environment, which in turn is then triggering various other uh, on longer term impacts. Melting Arctic ice gives rise to higher rising sea levels, for instance. So there is a causal linkage here. But of course, what's happening here is you can't actually turn around and say, well, BP is directly responsible for rising sea levels. Not at all. But we have a death by a thousand cuts. Or more accurately, looking at the TEAP report, we're looking at a death by 3,000 cuts. So what we're needing to do is really address the cause at the root of the problem. 
and turn off the tap there. Go upstream, so to say, and literally identify what is causing part of this problem. It's also it's about imposing a legal duty of care, a legal duty of care on not just CEOs of companies, but on heads of state, on governments. Because at the moment, nobody's taking responsibility for those territories and those countries that are at risk of rising sea levels. They are at risk of ecocides. They will go underwater. When I was speaking in Copenhagen at the climate negotiations at the end of 2009, Kiribati was saying we're looking at 30 years until we go underwater. Last year in Durban at the climate negotiations, they were saying under 15 years. This year um, at Durban, sorry, rather than Cancun, it could be even sooner. Who's going to take responsibility here? Well, by putting in place an international law of ecocide, we can impose a legal duty of care on all of us, all heads of states, to assist and ensure that those states that are at risk of ecocide are assisted and helped. Peaceful enjoyment. I, where does that term come from? If we go quickly back to I, my original definition the damage, destruction, or loss of ecosystems to such an extent that peaceful enjoyment of the inhabitants has been severely diminished. Remember, of course, inhabitants are not just humans. It's other beings as well. So the term peaceful enjoyment is a term that's well known in law. Uh, it's used in the tort of nuisance, uh, as it's known. And this is about recognizing that a legal responsibility has been breached. So in the act of damaging or destroying then that person who has title, um, who has a responsibility over that land uh, or to those who reside there, and not just humans, again, I see inhabitants as a far wider context. It's an earth community, not just a human community. Then therefore, those inhabitants have a legal right to peaceful enjoyment. So those who oversee have a duty of care. So the concept of peaceful enjoyment is something that's understood very well in the tort of nuisance. Breaking down the definition of ecocide, extensive destruction, damage to, loss of ecosystems. Well, destruction or loss, this is very evidentially straightforward. You, you can actually go on to Google Earth and put in Amazon and you will see what's been destroyed. You can, you can actually you know, quantify it in terms of size. Uh, but what constitutes damage? That, that's a more nebulous concept. And also to look at it in, in, in terms of size, duration, and impact. Well, the interesting thing is, is that we already have assistance from pre-existing law. And this is very often what we do when we're looking at uh, creating new laws or transposing. We look to what is there already. And during wartime, as one of the war crimes, the crime against uh, one of the crimes against peace, under Article 82B4, what we have there is a very useful definition. And what it has there, it talks about widespread, long-term, and severe damage to the natural environment, and it quantifies it, which would be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage. So it's saying damage and destruction that is, ex is excessive to military advantage. In other words, storming the castle but destroying the land and the people and all the inhabitants around just to get that castle over there can be excessive in the circumstances. Now, this particular provision uh, under the Crimes Against Peace, this war crime, was put in place as a result of the Vietnam War. It was accepted after Vietnam that we cannot go in there and destroy on such a large scale. Agents White, Orange and Blue were used and for the first time ever we had war being televised live and millions of people got out in the streets to say this is absolutely untenable. Vietnam is still suffering, second and third generation children are being born badly disfigured as a result of the chemical warfare that was used then. It was clearly excessive to the military advantage anticipated. So what if we transpose that war crime and we change one word 
instead of it being military advantage anticipated, and we change it to corporate advantage, and look at the BP Gulf oil spill. And what you see there is something very interesting because we begin to give context to what happened. So, let's look at this more closely. BP Gulf oil spill, after 10 weeks, had spread to over 700 square kilometers, which are now officially called Dead Sea. Hundreds of thousands of species have been adversely affected. Not only that, but it's spreading, it's moving, what have you. What was the overall corporate advantage that was anticipated? Well, that was going to be anything between two, uh, six months and two years' worth of profit for drilling down two miles underwater. Now, let's put this into a quantifying exercise. What's the damage that has taking place? Well, we're looking at damage and destruction that will take possibly up to a century to remedy itself. We don't have any solutions for remediation for deep seas. We can remediate shallow waters, but not deep seas. We're left with the damage and destruction. And in fact, we even have a double whammy because when BP went in there to do a clean-up exercise, they use a whole load of toxic chemicals, not to help disperse the oil, but to reduce it down underneath the water and to try and make it sink. Then with a blanket of additional chemicals on top. What was most interesting was that BP named that operation, Operation Kill. And that's precisely what they did. They had killed the sea. Now, put it back into this context, widespread long-term severe damage to the natural environment, which would be clearly excessive in relation to six months to two years' profit. Yes, we can say that is indeed correct. But in fact, it's not corporate interests that we want to protect here. Whose interests are we ultimately needing to protect? It's not the corporations, it's not the shareholders. It's the wider Earth community. So if we put it into the context of widespread long-term severe damage to the, to the natural environment, was it excessive in relation to the overall community advantage anticipated? What advantage was anticipated from extraction of oil from there? Well, it was a bit of heating and lighting for between six months and two years to just one species, us. It's clearly excessive. We know that we can actually gain our energy from other more benign resources. So we need to fundamentally reassess what we're doing here in terms of fossil fuel extraction. Going deeper into understanding definitions, the Environmental Modification Convention was put in, uh, again arising out of uh, the Vietnam War. And it actually defines widespread, long-lasting, and severe. So we already have this for wartime. And I say we transpose what we have for wartime, and we use it in peacetime, therefore for all time. How ironic that it's a crime I, to actually destroy the environment if it's encompassing an area on the scale of 700, several hundred kilometers if we're actually damaging ecosystems um, and it's causing impact for a period of three months or approximately a season, and if its severity involves serious or significant disruption or harm to human life, natural or economic resources or other assets. During wartime, that's a crime. During peacetime, it's not. So we have a gap here that needs to be filled. And in fact, it's during peacetime that we are creating this on a daily basis. International crime has a principle known as the responsibility principle, and this was a given voice during the International Tribunal in Nuremberg back in the 40s. And what was determined there is that, in fact, it's common sense. Crimes against international law are committed by men, also women, <laughs> are not 
abstract entities, and that, that's what's important. Crimes happen to take place because of human activity, not the corporation, not the fictional entity. It's those within the corporation. It's the decisions made by human beings. And what the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal went on to state is that it's only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. Now, these are not just words said lightly. It's a recognition that by using the power of criminal sanctions, it's, Im it's imposed upon human beings. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we can't put in prison a piece of paper. That's what a corporation is. Your articles of association, your charter, is just a piece of paper. No point putting a piece of paper behind bars. And as one judge famously said, what is a corporation? It has no soul and it has no body to kick its pants. So it's about understanding about imposition of responsibilities on human beings. But this was taken further during the Nuremberg trials. And it was understood that there is a superior responsibility, and that's an understanding that those who are in a position of command and control, those who are in superior rank, carry a higher burden of responsibility. And this is very important because at the moment what we're seeing, especially within the corporate arena, is the sidestepping of those in superior positions, superior uh, ranks where they say, nothing to do with me, contracted out, agents over there. There's the evasion of responsibility. And that door needs to be closed, because if you are willing to stand as the CEO of a corporation, then you need to stand for what is done on your patch during your time. I want to take you back in history for a little bit. 200 years ago, William Wilberforce a British politician, came along and he sat under an oak tree and realized that it was absolutely untenable to treat blacks as commodities. And he decided to take up the fight for the abolition of slavery. Back then, it was 300 companies that were very actively involved in slavery, whether or not it was by the trading of slaves or being involved in the physical manifestation or use of slaves, which was sugar plantations. I, sugar plantations were the first monocrop plantations of, of our, our time on a, a really mass industrial scale. And they needed a lot of slaves to facilitate them. It was also incredibly financially uh, worthwhile business. Uh, your average duke could live in, in incredible luxury with just 200 acres of sugar plantations out in the Indies, and that would garner him in profits 7,000 pounds a year. That, that is an enormous amount of money back in the 1760s. So it was absolutely the most lucrative business of its time, as was facilitating sugar plantations by, this, by the use of slaves. William Wilberforce said three things had to be done. He said, this is untenable. These slaves are not commodities. These are human beings. They are not things. This black in chains cannot be treated like this, as a, a thing to be used and abused and replaced when completely soaked up. And he said, what we need to do is we need to pool the subsidies. Slavery was very heavily subsidized. We need to outlaw it. We need to close the door to, the, to this completely. And then we need to create new subsidies for these 300 companies so that they can reinvent their wheels. And this is very important because Wilberforce was not wanting to close them all down. He just wanted to close down the business that was inherently wrong. And I'm coming from the same position here. I'm not out to hound the 3,000 corporations that are causing and creating all this damage and destruction. Because the interesting thing is, is that those corporations are not doing it with intent. There is no deliberate intent to sit down and say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, what shall we destroy today? I call it a crime of consequence because it is something that 
arises out of the pursuit of profit. The pursuit of profit without looking to the consequences. And it's about closing the door to that which is a consequence that we can no longer allow to happen, just as it was for Wilberforce back 200 years ago. And the interesting thing was that industry back then was completely up in arms. All of life 200 years ago was facilitated by slavery. Um, Oxford University, the Codrington Library, that is born of slave money and sugar plantation money. It permeated every level of life, both sugar and slavery. And the industry said, you turn off the tap upstream to the flow of slaves and our economies will collapse, not just here in the UK, but right across the world. And you can't stop it because the public demand it. But more importantly, it's a necessity. There are no other options here. And instead what they proposed was allow us to self-regulate. We don't need any more laws. Too cumbersome. We have far too many laws anyway. Um, in fact, if you must really get on our backs, what we'll do is we'll cap the numbers. And we'll do a form of internal trading. A cap and trade. Leave it to market forces to work this one out. Um, and we can have a form of permits, tradable permits, so permit culture. We'll also tell people to use their slaves a little less. There were over six million slaves out there at that time. 300 companies. Who do you address? The 300 up here or the six million over here? And say, please use your slave a little less. They also suggested improvement of conditions. One MP stood up in the House of Parliament and, and said, look, we'll give them hay for bedding as they come over in the boats. Given that two-thirds died on the boats coming over, hay was not going to be the panacea it was thought to be. And ultimately, at the end of the day, look, fine as if, you, if we exceed our numbers. Catch me if you can, laws. Because, actually, that's what fines are. What's the difference between today and back then? Not much. Now we're looking at 3,000 companies. And now we have industry in the fossil fuel industry, the heavy extractive industry. They say exactly the same thing. It can't stop us. It will lead to economic collapse. Public demand, it's a necessity. We have to continue business as usual. We have cap and trade processes in place. Uh, we have permits, permits to pollute. And we also have fining. In fact, fining is, is very useful for, for an awful lot of corporations, especially those involved in illegal logging, for instance, in the Amazon. It's factored in as an externality. Catches once in 100 times, and you down in the garden center buying a piece of garden furniture just pays a little bit extra to cover that inevitability. Or, worst case scenario, we close down our company, we reopen tomorrow under a different name. So the evasion of liability and also the evasion of responsibility here. But the big difference was back in the days of slavery was that all those propositions by industry were ultimately laughed out. And the decision was made to close the door to slavery. Slavery was abolished just two days before William Wilberforce died. He died a very happy man. He managed to do it in his lifetime. And he didn't have Facebook then. But what it did trigger was ripples that went right across the world. And it changed the course of history today and now. Now, that's not to say we don't still have slavery in muted forms. We do. We have girls being shipped in from Latvia for prostitution. And it's hidden and it's there. But at least we have the tools to address it. At least the norms shifted. And they shifted very radically overnight. It went from being absolutely the norm to have a black and chains to it being utterly unacceptable. Society, society's norms change very quickly. And law can do that, especially criminal law especially laws that are premised on morality, and that's really what it comes down to, and morality that is about the sacredness of life. So, I argue 
that the crime of ecocide is a crime that should be one of strict liability. What is strict liability? Strict liability is when a crime is committed and it matters not whether or not you had knowledge or belief uh, or intent to do that. It happens on your patch, so therefore you must pay the consequences. For instance, uh, the owner of a circus, his tiger in a cage escapes, creates mass damage and destruction. It is strict liability that governs that. He didn't have knowledge that that was going to happen. But what it does mean when you have strict liability in place is that you make sure you take every care and every precaution to make sure that that line doesn't escape. And you pay the consequences if it does. That is the risk you take by having an animal that could potentially cause damage and destruction. Lord Bingham, our former Lord Chief Justice, who sadly died last year, he, he was a great believer in the use of strict liability in certain circumstances. And he explained why we use strict liability, not just here in the UK, but across the world. And strict liability is used with certain offences because it's a recognition um, of the doing or, or not doing of a particular thing as to be so undesirable uh, as to merit the imposition of criminal punishment, irrespective of what that party thinks. And that's because of the importance which is attached in achieving the result that Parliament wants. In other words, to close the door. And the most obvious example of this is death by dangerous driving. That is a strict liability crime. Uh, it doesn't matter whether or not you had knowledge that you were going to uh, kill that child on the road as you were doing 70 miles down the highway. But the interesting thing is, the killing the child as you're going down the road at 70 miles uh, per hour, you could also be charged with manslaughter. You could be charged with murder. The difference is, of course, with murder, is that you've gone chasing after that child with the intent to kill the child, and you're using your vehicle as, as a killing machine. But that's not what death by dangerous driving is about. It's about, yes, objectively, the standard of your driving falling way below the standard of care that's expected. It doesn't matter what your knowledge was. It doesn't matter whether or not you knew you were going to kill someone, but you were reckless anyway. It's the fact that you did and it happened, and you have to pay the consequences. Now, the thing is also, with strict liability crimes, is that it's reflected in the sentencing provisions. Death by dangerous driving attaches a far lower sentence, three to four years, for instance. Whereas you're looking at manslaughter, where there's a reckless knowledge, you're looking at eight to 12 years. Murder, you're looking at uh, intent, deliberate, well, there you go, uh, you're looking at life. Now, let's see how this fits with the crime of ecocide. So using the definition that I've put, which is strict liability, death by damage or destruction or loss of ecosystems, that sits with death by dangerous driving. Um, while I was working this out, this slide just the other night, I was thinking, well, you know, could we have a form of equal slaughter? It's possible, yes, where there's a reckless knowledge there. You're looking at a far higher imprisonment then, this knowledge aspect. Did you kind of know that that was going to happen, but you went ahead anyway? But what if you go in there with deliberate intent? Well, this is the thing, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, there is intent there, that is understood. I, and of course, you know, it's not something that was a crime of consequence along the way. But I do say that ecocide sits at the lesser end of the scale. It is strict liability, it is a crime of consequence. Also, interestingly, if we have to impart some form of knowledge and it has to be satisfied in a court of law for ecocide to be made out, then what you'll find is that you'll have an awful lot of CEOs and such like, heads of banks saying, I didn't know, not me gov, I had no knowledge. Now this is very worrying when this happens because then you're going to have CEOs and directors making very sure they don't know what's going on over there. Whereas if you keep ecocide as strict liability and a lesser sentence, then in fact it's going back to your lion owner 
he has to make damn sure that he does everything within his power and his team do and his, his, his workplace take all precautions necessary to make sure that no damage or destruction happens. That really is most crucial. I spoke at Shell's AGM uh, just over a year ago and I spoke about the Athabasca tar sands in Canada and the picture that I showed earlier here is the Athabasca tar sands. What you see here at the front of that, that photograph is a toxic tailing pond. It's where toxins and the residue are dumped. The Athabasca Peace Delta used to be completely wetlands uh, and also a boreal peat forest, peatlands and, and forests. The proposed expansion of this area is for 45,000 square kilometres. That's the size of England and Wales. At the moment, we have between 22 and 26 million birds. The four main north migrat uh, migratory routes for North America fly over the Athabasca Pe uh, Peace Delta, and they all land there. They're genetically predisposed to do this because that's their stop-off point as they migrate. Mm -hmm. They do not know the difference between toxic tailing ponds and a wetland. And they don't survive. They go in, they do not come back out. And I spoke about that at Shell's AGM. And one of their directors came up to me afterwards, most concerned, because he didn't know about this. But he should know about that. And if there was a crime, or rather when there is a crime of ecocide and it's strict liability, he will have to make damn sure he knows about that. This is not something that should just remain within the hands of, of NGOs and a lawyer who happens to stand up in their AGM. This is something that they need to be addressing themselves and taking responsibility for. So moving on. Why do I say ecocide should be a crime of strict liability? It may seem like a minor point, but this is something that lawyers will ultimately you know, look at in great detail. I say it's very important because what we're looking at is a crime of consequence. Those directors of Shell are not going in there and deliberately wanting to kill off species. Um, it is in pursuit of profit. It's not done with intent, and I recognize that, and that needs to be recognized. It's also about imposing a preemptive obligation. It's about closing the door before we go down that route. It's about saying you need to address this before you even go in there and start extracting your oil from unconventional oil uh, tar sands. It's also it's about the absolute prohibition. It's not the halfway house. It's the absolute prohibition of the moral wrong. And interestingly, this is very much in line with pre-existing strict liability pollution and regulatory offences. We do this anyway for pollution dumping, for instance, at sea. But we're dealing with what Bingham was saying. This is a most serious crime. We're looking at something that is mass ecocide, ecocide over a certain size, duration, and impact. And we need to really close this door. And by lowering the sentencing threshold, we can reflect that lack of intent. It's about also being an effective deterrent. Strict liability ensures ultimately the high standards as opposed to neglect and it's about prohibition. Incarceration, ultimately, at the end of the day, is one of the most powerful disincentives. A fine, as we see, does not cut it. So ecocide is an international crime. Making it an international crime means it's a crime that flows to all. It's global imposition right across the world. Now, to put this in place requires a two-third majority amendment to the pre-existing Rome Statute, which sets out the four crimes against peace. So even if you don't sign up to this, and it's one vote per member state, you're still hidebound by this. And we know this is the case because General Pinochet, when he came to London back in 1998, and a Spanish magistrate hot-footed it over here to lay in information in Bow Street magistrates, and I was there that day, very exciting, and claimed crimes against humanity. Pinochet's argument through his lawyers was, doesn't apply to me. Crimes against peace, I didn't sign up to do those. Chile doesn't recognize crimes against humanity, doesn't recognize any crimes against peace. That went up through to the House of Lords, and the House of Lords came back and said, tough, basically, in legalese. <laughs> 
you can't sidestep this. It's um, international crime. It flows to all, ergo omnes. So it's about putting in something that creates out of a moral wrong. You, you look at that, that picture back there of the Athabasca tar sands. You know, it's not a crime in peacetime. It should be. And it's making that moral wrong into legal wrong. And it's about also imposing responsibility on the natural person, not the fictional entity, not the corporation. So it's about saying that CEO, those directors, have to take responsibility. It also removes that option of costing in as an externality. And it imposes that obligation of superior responsibility. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it does what happened with the abolition of slavery. It creates a shift in consciousness right across the world. And that's very important because it changes what our norms are. We now say it's no longer acceptable to create damage and destruction on this mass scale. And we know that we need to do something about this. The UN brought out another report last year saying we are at a tipping point here. If we continue with this damage and destruction and loss of species, we are looking at ecosystem collapse writ large. Somewhere along the line, we have to break that hermetically sealed cycle. So imagine, if you will, that I am a CEO, you are my directors of an energy company. And the crime of ecocide has now been put in place. We have a decision. Do we go into the Athabasca tar sands and extract our oil, uh, which is five times more energy intensive, five times more toxic, five times more use of water, five times more damaging, five times escalation of excess greenhouse gases, and so on and so forth, and therefore put ourselves at risk of ending up in The Hague in a tribunal and ultimately behind bars for ecocide. In fact, we have a huge problem because our shareholders now find it untenable to think that that company is making profit out of a crime. Moreover, the banks, those banks will no longer finance something that's criminal activity. And that head of state will no longer put in place policy that supports criminal activity. So this is really about the flow of money. This is about closing the door of the flow of money going into damage and destruction and opening the door to flow of money going in the opposite direction. This is about innovation on a grand scale in the opposite direction. This is about facilitating the clean green economy, the clean green world that we need. This is about getting those companies that are the problem to become the solution. This is about getting them to reskill their workforces in the opposite direction. So I am a CEO, you are my directors, my, my co-directors. Should we become a clean energy company today? I think so. Thank you very much.